Welcome to another podcast from the Rotary and Community Service Radio Show, which is now in its 11th year. Our show is heard every Friday between 6 and 8pm on Community Radio Station 94.1 FM, 3WBC, and is also streamed live on the World Wide Web at www.3wbc.org.au. Here is a recorded interview, first played on the 2nd of December 2016 by Ian Salick with three doctors from the Burnett Institute, Dr Jack Richards, Dr Herbert Opie and Dr Ricardo Atade. These doctors are seeking to find a vaccine to prevent malaria. Now it's my great pleasure to welcome to the 94.1 FM 3WBC microphone, Dr Jack Richards, Dr Herbert Opie and Dr Ricardo Atade from the Burnett Institute in Melbourne. And they're going to talk to us about the marvellous work they do in the fight against malaria. The tie-up with Rotary is that there is a group within Rotary called Rotarians Against Malaria, RAM for short, and these wonderful doctors are working to support the work that is being done in Rotary and we are working to support them in the work they're doing to practically control malaria. Welcome gentlemen to the 94.1 FM 3WBC microphone. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks you. Great to have you all here. Now Jack Richards, Dr Jack Richards, um, let's start with you. You recently spoke at a Rotarians Against Malaria conference in Melbourne that I attended and uh, you were introduced as being from the Burnett Institute, which uh, I know a little bit about, but, we, but before we talk about the Burnett Institute, let's find out a little about your background and why you are specialising in infectious diseases. Um, yeah, thanks Ian, thanks for having us on the show. So, uh, yeah, you're right, I've got a background in infectious diseases. I'm a clinician over at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and also uh, have a laboratory down here at the Burnett Institute. Um, my interest in infectious diseases really sort of goes back to a period where I was a clinician working in Kenya and uh, saw a lot of malaria back in the 2000s, a lot of HIV and TB. Uh, so that's really where my interest in this area stems from. And Jack, um, when was the Burnett Institute established? Uh, so the Burnett Institute actually derived out of the old Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital that many people will remember, sort of beautifully located on the bends of the Yarra River. Um, and in fact it was really a time when the HIV epidemic was just emerging uh, and there was clinical research and laboratory research uh, back at the Fairfield Hospital. And that led to the um, establishment of the Burnett Institute in about 1986 by Ian Gust. And Jack, tell us what it does uh, in, its, uh, in its full form. What does it cover? Well, so the Burnett Institute is actually a very uh, unique organisation. Uh, we're an independent, not-for-profit organisation. And in fact, we're the only organisation in Australia which is both an NGO and what we call a medical research institute. And so this really puts us in a unique uh, sort of position to be able to cover 
a wide spectrum of activities that ranges from grassroots engagement with communities about their health issues through to uh, the discovery and development of new tools to improve people's health. Um, and we're particularly interested in working with vulnerable communities in Australia and internationally. And what would be the percentage in terms of time allocation internationally versus uh, local community Australian issues? Uh, look, it's hard to say. We've got programs that are dedicated to both and, and many of those are dedicated to particularly drug and alcohol issues and, and risky behaviours in Australia. But we've also got permanent um, programs that are concerned with international health issues as well. So we run uh, in each of those domains concurrently. And Jack, you have a special interest, do you not, in malaria? What, why malaria? Well, again, it goes back to those early days in Kenya and seeing an awful lot of people coming in with malaria. Um, you know, I ran the emergency department in a small rural hospital there and we would usually see about 200 people a day. And in the malaria season, the vast majority of those people had malaria. So uh, that's why I came back and um, did my clinical training in infectious diseases and then did a, a PhD. So not many people know, but those two doctorates cancel each other out. So I'm back to being a normal <laughs> person again. You're far from a normal person with the work that you do. Uh, I want to come back shortly and talk about malaria, the disease itself, and drill down a little bit more into what it really is and how you're working to prevent it. But we have uh, with us also, as I just mentioned, uh, Dr Herbert Opie. Uh, and what, uh, what is your role, Herbert, in here at the Burnett Institute? Yeah, thank you. So I, I am a scientist here at the Burnett Institute. I mainly work within a group that's interested in understanding how people become naturally protected against malaria and how they develop uh, protection. And we are trying to use this information to inform the development of vaccines that can be used in regions where people are affected by the scourge of malaria. And how long have you been working with the Burnett Institute for? Um, so I have been in the Burnett for the past three years now, um, since I came over to the Burnett, and so far it's been an interesting journey doing the work we're doing here. Yeah. Wonderful work, wonderful work. Now, um, are you focusing on anything mainly? Yeah, so my focus is on an interesting aspect of malaria, actually, that it's good you'd ask. Um, malaria affects quite a significant number of pregnant women. So we mostly know malaria affecting children, but a big a population of pregnant women get infected with malaria, and it's associated with very significant out negative outcomes in these pregnant women. Children die, the women die as well. So my work focuses on understanding how we can develop um, vaccines and how we can develop uh, ways of protecting these women, vaccines that can be used to protect these women against the scourge of malaria, specifically during pregnancy. During pregnancy, is there anything you do beforehand after these women are married that you can do in regard to protecting them against malaria and uh, the likely childbirth that they will enjoy later in life? Yes, so currently, and you, you'll hear a bit of that later on, um, there are several things that have been used in trying to ensure that women get uh, protected um, during the period of pregnancy. Of course, we do have drugs as well. We do have things like uh, nets 
that women are encouraged to use during this period and I believe one of my colleagues will talk about it more in some more detail. Yes, I'd like to talk about that, the insecticide nets, a little in a little moment. But thank you, Herbert. We'd like to now talk to Ricardo. Hello. Ricardo Atade. Welcome to the uh, interview, Ricardo. Great to have you here. And I know you've had some professional radio experience, <laughs> so I'll have to be watching myself during <laughs> the rest of this, this interview. But uh, Ricardo, what is your role here at Burnett? So, uh, exactly as Herbert said, I'm also a scientist here. Um, actually, the official name is Research Officer. And it's um, a step after the PhD, you become a postdoctoral researcher. Uh, so that's, that's my official title here at Burnett. And what do you focus on? So we focus in the group, we focus a lot on studying big population data. So basically we look at um, lots of, specifically in South, we have studies in Southeast Asia trying to understand how resistant to antimalarials is being developed by the parasite. How does the parasite develop that resistance? And how does, do the populations create immunity or have immunity against those parasites. And we're very interested in trying to understand if we can use the levels of immunity of the population to predict where this resistance is going to appear. I know a lot of Australians are uh, less informed these days about malaria. I know during the Second World War my father was in New Guinea and he uh, contracted malaria which came back to Australia. But um, in Australia these days, it's not uh, as uh, virulent as it used to be. No, I, I believe there's no malaria in Australia, apart from the one that Australians bring back when they come exactly. from countries where there is malaria. Exactly. Well, I've certainly read uh, from the World Health Organization uh, that uh, the lives of 5.9 million people have been saved by global malaria control program since 2000. So, Jack, uh, you might like to tell us uh, what do these control programs encompass? Uh, look, there's a lot of things that go on and you know, those figures you know, speak for themselves. There's been a remarkable global effort and you know, I think a lot of people should uh, you know, get a pat on the back for, for these efforts. Um, but it's not a simple answer. I think that uh, there's a lot of things that go into controlling malaria uh, and, and bringing about those sort of declines. Bed nets, you know, we don't need to tell Rotarians too much about bed nets. They've got a fantastic bed net program. Uh, we know that there's strong scientific evidence to decrease malaria in some regions by 50 to 60 percent through the use of bed nets. So clearly they're a, a critical part of that, um, that intervention strategy. Um, but it's more complicated than that and there's also um, important efforts to diagnose and treat everybody that's actually got malaria, the actual illness itself. There's other efforts to control the mosquito because we're talking about a mosquito-borne disease obviously. Um, and, and then there's other specialty sort of um, strategies as Herbert was talking about with pregnant women, offering them special treatment um, and uh, various other strategies as well. And Malaria was effectively controlled in Australia um, when? Was it, was, was it something that was here just after the war and has now been eradicated? I'm, I've heard lately, for instance, that in certain areas of New South Wales there is a hundred times the possibility of malaria reoccurring where certain procedures aren't taken in terms of water and uh, other areas of 
of uh, cleanliness? Uh, look, it's, again, it's, it's a bit of a complex issue and certainly we have the mosquitoes in parts of Australia that could transmit malaria um, and uh, this is particularly the case in the northern parts of Australia where they've got this Anopheles type of mosquito. In fact, we have some down here in Victoria too, but probably not quite as good a mosquito as transmitting malaria. Um, and in fact, we, as you say, we did used to have malaria in Australia. Um, so the earliest case that I know of was in 1843, uh, the first case of malaria that was described. And then, as you say, through to the Second World War, we um, made particular efforts and eliminated malaria from Australia. In fact, we were declared malaria-free only in 1981. So it's not all that long ago that we had it on our own, uh, in our own um, country. Uh, and I think that sort of bears thinking about when we're talking about uh, activities with our neighbours. And Jack, what do we need to do here, and we'll certainly talk about the efforts that are being made overseas, but what do we need to do here? What physical measures do we need to take to ensure that it does not reoccur in Australia? Uh, look, I think I mean, the chances of it coming back are fairly slim, um, but I, I think it's important that people think about uh, taking adequate precautions when they go travelling overseas and that they get some information from their uh, doctor. Uh, we can give prophylactic medications to people to reduce the chances of them getting sick from malaria, but that also then carries over to decreasing the likelihood of them bringing it back to Australia. Um, and of course, we monitor everybody that comes back to Australia that's got malaria and we follow up on those people too. So if there was to be a local outbreak in in Australia, we would detect that very, very quickly and we've got strategies to actually uh, um, go hunting for those mosquitoes and eradicating those mosquitoes if it was to occur. Gentlemen, I know that malaria has been described as a very tricky disease to eradicate, but in layman's terms, is it possible to eradicate malaria and uh, why has it been so difficult to date to do so? Um, well, we've really dramatically changed the way that we think about malaria in the last sort of 10 years or so. Um, you know, we used to really think about controlling malaria and that was diagnosing individual people with malaria and, and treating those individuals. But really since about 2007 when Bill and Melinda Gates came out and really made a declaration that globally we think about eradicating this disease from the earth, uh, much like we have for smallpox, it's really changed the way that everybody's working. And, um, and, I, and I think it, it is a realistic target. It's certainly a challenging target, but it's one that we really have to embrace. And if we all work together and we um, also commit ourselves to developing new tools, um, then I think it is achievable. Jack, you might like to answer this question also as a follow-on. What areas in the world uh, have the highest incidence of malaria still? Um, I hope it's probably the best one to answer this Herbert? question, so it's still... <laughs> yeah, I think just to pick up on that, some of the most um, affected places with the highest incidences are in sub-Saharan Africa, 
So this is where you get most of the deaths, about 90% of the deaths that are reported actually occur within sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there's quite a number of incidences uh, in Southeast Asia and Pacific, but the most severe form of malaria that causes the most deaths is found within sub-Saharan Africa, and that's where we still have some of the greatest burden of the disease that's still currently present. Yeah. And let, let's, sorry for interrupting, but let's not forget also South America which has a, quite a big burden of malaria also. Yes, and Asia, Southeast Asia. Yes, Southeast Asia is, and Pacific, as Herbert mentioned. But Africa is the area of the highest incidence. Is that yeah. still the case? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I think that's really closely related to the parasite that is mostly found within Africa because this is the parasite that has consistently been associated with causing the most severe form of the disease, uh, and that's why the highest burden is still found uh, within countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And Herbert, how many forms of parasite are there that have been uh, discovered and notated? There are, there are about five of them that we know, but I'll, I'll just talk about the two main ones. Um, one of them is known as uh, Plasmodium falciparum. This is most prevalent within Africa, and the other one is known as Plasmodium vivax. So this is what you'd mostly found, find in Southeast Asia. And those two are the ones that you focus on? We, we mainly, our group mainly works on falciparum, um, yes. at least my work. We've got a few projects within our group that are interested in understanding virus because this is a, a malaria parasite that for a long time has been neglected and people really used to think that it doesn't cause as much of a burden but now we do understand that in, even in Southeast Asia there's a significant burden from malaria that we see and some of the work in our group tries to understand um, just how this parasite affects people within Southeast Asia as well. So I don't know if curious, you want to Yeah, I just something. wanted to say that one thing that's very curious about Vivex malaria uh, is that this is a type of malaria that you get, you can treat it, but if it's not treated correctly, you can relapse again a few months later, even a few years later. Um, and so there's a lot of tales of Europeans or Australians after the war going back home and having malaria, and that's, that's that parasite specifically. And that's the difficulty, that's the tricky factor. That, yeah, that's tricky because we, we do have uh, drugs that can kill the, the liver stage of the parasite that remains in the body and that makes it relapse. But it, these are drugs that are not um, very good for you when you take them. They, are very, they have a very long regimen of treatment. And, and side effects? They have side effects, of course. All, all these drugs have side effects. But, um, but also they cannot be given to everybody. And Jack has a, a project that's specifically designed to look at how can we address this question of giving this drug to everybody or not? Is there some immunity? Is there from some people or, or, or the, you know, a reaction that you just can't treat those patients? No, look, as Ricardo says, uh, some people have a genetic um, abnormality uh, that affects particularly their red blood cells uh, and it means they have lacking a certain enzyme in their red blood cells and unfortunately this drug can uh, affect those individuals and mean that if we give them the drug, it can actually rupture all their red blood cells. So that's you know, not, not the ideal that's situation, not unfortunately. Not the cure you were looking yeah. for. Uh, um, Jack, I wanted to ask this question, and quite often in terms of medical research and science, it is a key factor. Is the ability to control malaria, to purge malaria, really associated with the level of financial support worldwide that goes into research. 
Is it a matter of if there was more money, we'd get it done quicker, or is that far too simplistic? Look, I think it's a very important issue, and it's an important one for us to reflect on locally. Um, you know, as we sort of allocate our our resources um, in this you know fairly lucky country that we have, and and it's certainly an important issue. So you know, there's no doubt that we need to put more financial resources into this huge global issue. Um, it's estimated that there's probably about $3,000 million that goes into this every year. Sounds like a lot of money, but it's probably only about half of what we would need to get the job done. So you know, clearly we need more uh, financial resources, but we've also got to be clever about the way that we use those resources, and some of that has to go through to um, new research and new, new discoveries and new tools, but a lot of it needs to go through to improving healthcare systems in the countries that have it uh, and improving their ability to uh, prevent, diagnose and treat individuals that have got malaria. I don't expect you to, to name any other organisation, but there are a number of research organisations that are involved in infectious disease prevention is there any level of cooperation or is there a degree at the moment of uh, uh, it's our institute, we're doing our thing, they're doing theirs? I mean, what is the level of cooperation? Um, I'd say probably the other guys will add as well, but I'd say there is a lot of cooperation and I think a lot of the work we do, we do in collaboration with people from other institutions as well, even just here within Melbourne. Um, in fact, in coming months, we have a conference that we do every year that's called Malaria in Melbourne, and uh, we come together with different institutions and talk about the great work that we are doing uh, within uh, the community in Australia and Melbourne specifically. You share your knowledge. Yes, exactly. And, and it, it, is such a, it is such a global disease, and I don't think there's any one particular group of people that can say they're able to do it alone and there's a lot of collaboration and cooperation between us and a few other scientists uh, in Melbourne, in Australia and even in the world as well. Yeah, I think that the, the days of the scientist working alone in his study, just looking at his papers, they're finished. We need to collaborate with each other. I think that's a great outcome, obviously, if that happens and um, I thought there might be some commercial sensitivity in terms of sharing too much information, uh, but it's good that you do so. I think that the commercial sensitivity comes with companies, not between scientists medical and, research and medical institute. research institutes. Well, that's a fine thing, Ricardo, a fine thing. Um, a question that I wanted to ask you, and it's, it's a far-fetched one, I suppose. Do you see any end date uh, by which the world could be rid of malaria? I mean, do you think it's within the next 20 years? Is it in the, uh, do you see any end date at all approaching uh, as to when malaria might be off the planet? I mean, this is always a million dollar question, Ian. You've laid, left it to last. But, I um, you know, and it's a tricky one because it's important to set objectives and to set goals. But, uh, and, and clearly this is done on a global scale. This, um, the, uh, this year the um, Global Malaria Action Plan, Global Technical Strategies were released. These are global documents that are meant to you know, put a plan in place for us all to uh, follow and um, rally us all together to achieve those goals. And, and really the emphasis there is on um, 2030, so some clear objectives over the next 15 years or so. Um, 
and, and really to reduce malaria by about 90% over that period of time. So clearly that's going to be a challenge, but that's, that's what we've got ahead of ourselves at the moment. That's a very positive outcome. And I dare say when uh, polio was being viewed in terms of its eradication, the same sort of answers were being given. There's no guarantee, but uh, the world is now, except for two countries, uh, clear of uh, polio. And that was a, a challenge and a, an exercise that was thought very, very difficult to predict at that stage. So I understand what you're all saying in regard to that. Well, gentlemen, Dr Jack Richards, Dr Herbert Opie and Dr Ricardo Atade, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Rotary Radio Show on 94.1 FM, 3WBC. You and your Burnett Institute should be rightly proud of the work that you do. Your contribution for the betterment of mankind is certainly to be highly praised. And I wish you, all of you, and Burnett, every success in your challenging research work to eradicate malaria. Your commitment is akin to Rotary's motto, service above self. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This podcast was produced and presented by Ian Salick of Rotary District 9800 in Victoria, Australia. Podcasts can be found on iTunes by searching for Rotary Radio, then scrolling to Doing Good in Victoria, or by visiting the Rotary Club of Canterbury website at www.canterburyrotary.org.